Well, I, I keep wondering if this means the end of snow days. Now that we know we can do remote and that's been an option, I mean, can a district in, in good faith ever give a snow day again when they know students can just get online? This is Under the Dome. On today's episode, we'll take a closer look at K-12 school reopening in North Carolina and what the past year has been like for educators, students, and elected officials managing the coronavirus and school. Greetings, I'm Don Vaughn for the News and Observer, your host for this Closer Look episode of Under the Dome. With me today is Alex Granado, senior reporter at Education NC, and we'll be taking a closer look at the school's reopening issue, which after weeks of back and forth with political everything has finally been decided and signed into law, but the issue itself has lasted a year. So I think we're almost uh, to the day or so when uh, when schools were first closed. So. Alex, tell me what, well, first of all, thank you um, for, for joining me on this episode. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Tell me what it was like in the for, as an education reporter when all of this started, when you were thinking about, you know, or last March when we realized that schools would be closed and then it was at two weeks. Was it, you know, a month? Was it months and months and months and months? And just kind of how how educators in general and everyone involved in schools thought going into this? Or did they think anything? You know, we, we didn't know it would happen. Yeah. I mean, when, when this all happened, it was really just unprecedented, right? Even, even when we were just hearing about the virus and the potential for a pandemic, the, the idea seemed far-fetched. Like people have been talking about this kind of thing for years. It can't possibly happen. And so the moment when um, Governor Cooper actually decided to close schools for two weeks was for me, the moment of realization that, yes, this is a real thing that is happening and things are about to get serious because the government doesn't close school for things that aren't serious. I mean, it's it's heavy snow and hurricanes and now a pandemic. So for me, it was it was disbelief, you know, for I think educators and for staff people at the Department of Public Instruction. I don't know that they even had time to express this belief or disbelief because they had to so quickly switch to a whole new mode of educating students. I can't remember exactly what the timetable was, but um, it was a quick turnaround in which all the schools were expected to start offering remote learning. I was going back and looking at one of the first articles I wrote around the start of this and the then DPI spokesperson, Graham Wilson, I quoted him in an article about the the online learning resources that DPI was making available to teachers. And, and it's hard to, you know, even think about it now because remote learning has become such a, you know, everyday topic of conversation. But back then it was like, how do we do this? And, and he was like, well, DPI has resources that you can access and, and we'll help you get started. And, and it's just been such a road that we've traveled since then. I remember at the beginning, it, it was kind of sort of a look at how, you know, some educators are, you know, went easily into it and love it and some didn't. And then when you think about the students, you know, depending on their mm-hmm. their age and grade and familiarity, if they even have devices at home or, you know, I'm a Wake County parent. I've got my son a, a laptop for the first time ever, didn't have his own. Um, and, you know, there was that the parent relief checks that were in some of the COVID money um, from the federal government that was passed last year. And just the idea of that, and that was only a few months after it started. I don't think anybody really knew. I remember that right. 
we thought, well, would school open in, in May maybe or in, in June? And then when the legislature first started talking about it, I'm sure you remember it was, well, let's put some remote learning days into the, the next school year in case this is still around. <laughs> and that feels, you know, how, how long ago now, you know, like 10 years ago, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, it was it was like everybody, and I think I was doing this too, was, was looking for for landmarks of when this was going to be over. So first, Cooper said it was going to be two weeks. So it's like, all right, two weeks and we'll be done. And then, um, you know, towards the end of that two weeks, it seemed obvious that things were getting worse and that schools were going to be closed for longer. And it was like, okay, the rest of the year, we can deal with that the rest of the year. And then it was like, but we'll be okay in the fall. And then all summer, the big announcement we were waiting for is what Governor Cooper was going to say about how schools were going to reopen in the fall. You know, at every landmark, it seemed like if we just get to the next landmark, things will be better. Things will be turning around. And at every landmark, things were not turning around. Things just seemed to be getting worse. And if you had asked me last year that Sunday is the actual anniversary of when schools closed, March 14th last year, if if you'd asked me then whether it would take this long for things to get back to even a semblance of normality, which arguably it really hasn't, I would have thought you were crazy. I thought this was going to be over by the end of the summer. Yeah, so so it's been quite a ride. I wonder how, if we would have, uh, if we had known it would last this long, if we would have made it this long, because <laughs> there's always that hope of, well, next month we'll see and sort of, but then in the other sense, it became Groundhog Day and Groundhog Week of the governor and and Dr. Cohen's press conferences and this, I mean, you can uh, made the joke that you know there's the bingo squares of dimmer switch and science and data and thanking the you know providers and once we get to vaccines and these repeated phrases over and over week to week you know every few weeks and in the middle of this there are are the teachers and school staff that have to figure out how to do their jobs in this whole new way. And, and it's been interesting to see how, again, like when that first went remote and some educators were perfectly comfortable with online, some students were, some students did better academically online, some students did terribly. I mean, weren't there, it was um, the, the failure rate of, of students and not just in North Carolina, but in other states too. And you cover the State Board of Education too, right? So what what have you seen on how they've, tried to handle this because they're, I mean, they're appointed. So there's, there's politics involved, but also trying to run statewide a school system with, with who's telling them and who's complaining to them and, and all of those factors. Sure. Well, it, it was interesting. I remember at the start of this, it, it seemed like everybody was coming together and, and uh, not just on the state board, but it seemed like the Republican legislative leaders were coming together with Governor Cooper. It seemed like everybody was on the same page and that didn't last, but I was looking back at, at when they, this first started, and probably a week before the pandemic became clearly serious, I was writing an article about acrimony between then Superintendent of Public Instruction, Mark Johnson, and the State Board of Education. You know, uh, Superintendent Johnson's entire term was marked with acrimony with the State Board. Um, you know, they never really got along. But the very next week, as soon as the pandemic hit and the State Board and DPI started having to address what was happening, the tone changed completely between them and changed for a a long period of time. It seemed like everybody realized that all of the political stuff didn't matter anymore, and they had to figure out a way to switch to remote learning. They had to figure out, you know, what were we going to do about all these 
requirements that nobody thinks about. Um, you know, everybody always complains about testing and of course, end of grade tests, you know, rightly or wrongly, but nevertheless, there are, there are requirements, there are federal requirements, there are state requirements. And so, you know, last year when it became clear, it was going to be very difficult to administer these tests. They couldn't just unilaterally decide not to give them. They had to seek waivers from the federal government, seek waivers from the state government. And there was just a host of little decisions that the State Board of Education had to make about changing all of these things from testing to school performance grades. And so, you know, for a long time, I'm not even sure how long, every state board meeting was just about COVID-19. It was all about COVID-19 and exceptions to policies and, you know, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? And everybody was on the same page. And while it was, you know, I think terrifying for a lot of people, it was also nice to see everybody kind of working together on the same problem, regardless of politics. Of course, like I said, that didn't last, but. Right. Johnson and Cooper were together at Pressers and then now, you know, uh, Truett and, and Cooper, do you think? And, and of course, that mm-hmm. the in-person press conference where they were all together outside and which it doesn't always happen that often that they get together in, in agreement on things. Do you think the election and the, for people that may not know, Johnson, um, you know, didn't run again. He ran for lieutenant governor, didn't make it through the primary. Um, Catherine Truett is the new superintendent. She's also Republican like Johnson. It seems to have maybe a different style. Um, you know, some different uh, differences on, on policy and how she wants to handle things. Do you think that's been a factor at all as far as who the superintendent is or, or not really? I mean, I think it's, it's a factor in a lot of what the State Board of Education is doing, just insofar as it's easier for the State Board to make decisions when uh, the head of DPI is working with them rather than opposed to a lot of things that they're doing. Um, you know, Superintendent Truitt, a lot of her campaign was about how she was going to be a different kind of superintendent and how she was going to work with the state board and be kind of a partner with them. I think it was the first, her first meeting with them in January. I, I think the chair of the state board had kind of a speech about how they were working as, you know, with one voice, they were going to talk with one voice. And I think that has made a big difference in how the state board of education operates and, and just Anecdotally, from talking to some Republican legislators, I think it makes a difference for them in working with the state board and with DPI, just kind of going forward and how policy decisions are going to be made. I thought it was interesting that Truett came when she was running, I believe it was September, and Republicans, including Lieutenant Governor, former Lieutenant Governor now, um, Dan Forrest, at a press conference pushing for, for schools to be open. And she didn't have a role at any any point there, but but was there for that and and part of that push and and that announcement kind of got uh, overshadowed by Forrest's comments about you know I'll end the mask mandate and open schools immediately and that's the plan that's the whole plan you know but everyone else there was pushing for uh, general reopening of schools and Governor Cooper was it within days uh, you know announced that elementaries could open under Plan A mm-hmm. and even earlier this year with with Senate Bill 37 which is now now dead and and moot. Um, but as soon as that was filed, you know, then Cooper strongly urges um, schools to open. And it's been interesting to see sometimes really in a matter of days, you know, really the push from Republicans wanting this and then and then Cooper reacting. And some of the timing of that has also been the latest, you know, CDC study or guidance or other studies and 
And once there's that data about the the negative impact, you know, on all these all these children not being in school in person, things like you know, from foster care to you know mental health, all all these other factors of what's going on. And then now that vaccinations were here, and but teachers not on the list yet, and wanting wanting to be on the list. So, what do you think about that that political tension and the timing? And I feel like everybody wanted to take credit for it, and in the end, they both got it because they you know got together with their announcement. But what do you think about just how that's played out over the past? I mean, months really, you know, with with how they've interacted. Well, education is an interesting uh, topic politically because I think it's one of these issues where almost everybody can uh, honestly say that they have the same goal. They want kids to be well-educated, right? Nobody's going to say that that is not their goal. And so I think we, we kind of see this playing out in the in, in how Republican positions can push Governor Cooper to do things because the truth is, is that both sides ultimately had the same goal. They do all really want kids to come back to school. And the the only difference was really a matter of how to do it. And so I think, um, you know, at every opportunity, Cooper felt the pressure from Republicans, but I think he also understood that the pressure from Republicans was symbolic of the pressure from parents. Because I think that, you know, education is one of these, one of these interesting topics where ideology can kind of go out the window when it comes to your kids. Like you can be the most liberal or conservative person on education in the abstract, but then when you have a kid and you have to decide what's best for your kid, you might become very pragmatic and not worry so much about your political ideology, right? And I I think that, you know, for Cooper, seeing parents out there and knowing that the decisions he makes about getting their kids back in school is going to have a big influence on how they feel about him or about the Democratic Party made it a lot easier to, to push him on this topic rather than on some other topics where the Republicans and, and he have been at kind of loggerheads. I remember when the, um, the SB 37, the bill that was not the compromise bill, but the initial bill that the Republicans put forth and had and had Democrats vote with them, but the, the override failed. A lot of them were saying they had to work out um, some of the language over a weekend and they were saying, we're hearing from superintendents and they're asking, well, like, you know, you need to know this and you need to th- know that. And you've talked to some superintendents. So if you can share what what that's been like on the ground for them, because, you know, they might get a heads up or they're watching these announcements, you know, live and thinking, OK, you know, what am I going to do with with all these schools and and how am I going to handle this if they're not already doing what, um, you know, the government is, is in line with. So what, what has that been like on, on the ground in different parts of the state and their different needs? Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about North Carolina is we're so geographically diverse and the school districts really, depending on where you are, can be so completely different from one another that one of the arguments you've heard a lot throughout this whole thing is that a one size fits all approach doesn't work. So having one standard of what in-person options can be available for the entire state um, might not work for some superintendents, whereas it does work for others. And, um, you know, I talked to one superintendent who was actually able to do plan B, which is, you know, supposed to be hybrid of in-person and remote learning. She was able to do plan B, but have all the kids back in school full-time in person. And the reason she could do this is because the reason plan B has to be hybrid is because it requires six feet of social distancing. 
But because of the size of her district, the size of her schools, kind of the space they had available and, and by putting students in different places. So like maybe the middle school kids are in the high school and the elementary kids are in the middle school. They just kind of switch them all around. But by doing all that, she was essentially able to do plan A under plan B, right? Because she can meet the requirements. And then there's other districts where, you know, it's just impossible. It's, it's almost impossible even to do plan B given the size that they're in. And, you know, when Cooper, you were, you were mentioning how he um, made the announcement around the time that, um, you know, the, the Republicans launched their, their bill to reopen schools, he made the announcement urging school to, schools to bring their students back, right? And I, I remember I talked to one superintendent at the time who was just gung-ho to go to Plan A. They had very low um, COVID transmission rates in this district. They had thought that Cooper was about to make an announcement that they could go to plan A. So they had already been actively planning to move from plan B to plan A. And so the superintendent was very disappointed when he found out that wasn't going to be the case and also confused because he wasn't sure exactly what it was that Cooper's urging was doing. He wasn't sure if that was actually just urging or if there was going to be some sort of change in the guidelines that just wasn't announced. So that was kind of confusing for this particular superintendent. But I mean, the fact remains that the the needs of different districts just vary dramatically. So each decision along the way has had ripple effects that are good in some places and maybe not so good in others. I thought that was interesting. I mean, and and a point that I always made, I'm sure you did too, and in, in our coverage of this is that most schools have offered, you know, in person in some form. So when we talk about reopening schools, most of them are, but like the mm-hmm. some aren't at all. And you know, and we're looking at a year of of kids never being in classroom. And the whole background of, of all of this is nobody's being forced to go to school. You know, it was virtual under Cooper's plan. It was virtual even under the the failed, you know, Republican bill and the compromise. You can you can still do virtual. So people that have those personal safety concerns you know, those are, those are validated, you know, and they don't have to worry about that. So it'll be interesting to see how the, the rest of the, the school year, you know, pans out with how, if they want to change with these, I know at Wake, their, their current plan B is like a three-week cohort rotation, and maybe they'll switch to two weeks. And, and when I heard that some schools could be full-time plan B, I was thinking, well, where are these giant right. schools, you know, <laughs> because if I'm not, not in Wake County, you know, if you've ever been <laughs> inside a classroom and, and see how that goes. But that's the thing about North Carolina is where, um, and one of the reasons I love this state is how, you know, mountains to see and all that. And, uh, you know, just a variety of, of, of what we have. So any last thoughts on what what really this is exposed in the state as far as education and, and things that North Carolina, either legislatively or otherwise, needs to look at going forward, that, that now that we know because we've gone through this, that could become better. What, what do you think about that? Well, I, I keep wondering if this means the end of snow days. <laughs> now that we know we can do remote and that's been an option, I mean, can a district in, in good faith ever give a snow day again when they know students can just get online? Um, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but I am interested to see how that goes. Uh, but I do think, you know, the shift to remote learning does represent some sort of sea change for education in North Carolina, which isn't to say that I think it's going to go online. But I think the fact that it's now been demonstrated that um, learning online can happen in some capacity is going to make the ability of districts to weather certain emergency situations better. I, I think when when this all started, 
there was an understanding that remote learning may not be the best option, but given the emergency, it was a good option. And then the problem was that the emergency just never ended. And so people were like, well, this wasn't meant to be permanent. But there are plenty of emergencies that happen in North Carolina that are short term, that happen and last a period of weeks or months, where I think remote learning could be helpful. And I think that we've seen that that can happen and that districts can move to that relatively quickly. So I'm interested to see kind of how that plays out once the pandemic is gone and once we we actually get back to some kind of normal education life. And that's probably a topic for um, another Closer Look episodes about broadband and how that changes, you know, across the state and and access to, to everybody. Um, all right. Well, Alex, thanks for, for joining me. Absolutely. Um, and everyone else, thanks for listening. I'm Don Vaughn for the News and Observer. See you next time. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for her weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.